and welcome to Lore Watch Roundtable, freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm Ann Stickney, one of two lore-focused writers from Blizzard Watch, and I've got both my wonderful co-hosts with me today. First up, he's a shaman columnist. He also knows a lot about lore. That would be Joe Perez. Hey, Joe. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to report that I have yet another shaman. Another one? I, I, I have rolled another one and boosted it on another server to play with friends. And, oh, and okay. So this wasn't like an allied like race type thing. No, no. It, I, mean, I don't think any of the allied a... races can be shaman, can they? Yes, they can. High Mountain Torrin. Oh, sure the High Mountain can. can. Yes, they can. Okay. I forgot about them. I, I was like racking changed. my brain. I'm like, I know, I know that they couldn't and they couldn't. And they were saying, okay. Anyway, um, before we get too ahead of ourselves, I should also introduce <laughs> our other co-host. He's a lore columnist over on Blizzard Watch as well and knows warriors just as well as Joe knows shaman. And that would be Matt Rossi. Hey, Rossi. Three warriors. Just three? Three more. Oh, three more. Okay. How many total? Oh, God. Um, I just ran out of space and had to delete a bunch of characters to make more of them. And so how many I think of it, those are warriors? At least 42. Oh, my good Lord. Okay. I, I, I got a rogue. I've got, like, two paladins now. Uh, one of them's Lightforged. I thought I was going a little bit overboard because I made my Nightborn a rogue, because why not? And I, that put me at, I think, like, four rogues, maybe five rogues. No, I, and I thought I was going overboard, but I feel okay now. <laughs> I have, I believe I have, like, nine 110s right now. Yeah, I have a lot of one tens um, of varying. But they're classes. all of warriors. These are all yeah. warriors. See, I I just have like a variety of classes. Joe, how many shaman do you have? Ten now. Ten? Okay, I'm feeling much better about the four to five rogues. <laughs> just saying. I can't help it. It's it's one of the only <laughs> classes that like whenever I'm feeling like oh I want to level something or oh I want to make a new character I go uh, rogue. I'll try. I try other things, but it's like it always comes back to Shaman. Though I am having a ton of fun with, with my warrior recently it... because being able to charge uh, Bull Rush after a, a heroic leap is one of the most fun things I've done in this game in a long time. See, I do... I do... It's it's If I'm playing a new race that I've never played before, then I'll usually pick Rogue because... I just I'll, I'll play the class that I'm most familiar and most comfortable with. Um, if I'm playing a new class, well, then it's all up in the air, um, and it doesn't really matter one way or another. I will say, however, that I do have a 110 shaman, and I think that was like the second or third character that I got to 110. And just recently, in my rush of rolling different allied races, I did roll a light forged warrior Rossi. I am going to try warrior again. Oh, <laughs> I don't. I'm, it's... I don't know how far I'm going to get with it, but I'm going to try. <laughs> okay. It's it's you know I I I rolled a Torin. I had a Torin warrior. I got him to 110 so that I could unlock High Mountain, and then use my boost on that one. So that one's 110. Right. Then I leveled one of my. I had a Draenei warrior. I wasn't playing, so I leveled that one to 110. And then I found another. Like that's when I roll. I finally finished the Light Forged. I got the Army of the Light Rep to Exalted yesterday, because you can you can buy those tokens off of um, Teralion that give you um, like the follower. Yes. Like it's the Light Forge, whatever. You can just throw those out and buy more from it. And it's it was like ten rep plus. I was getting well, extra they stack plus. too. I mean, you can just keep stacking them. They you know once you have five, you have to stop. Oh, like is it, it five well, that's the max? Okay. Yeah. See, I've gotten like four tops because I go through no. them pretty frequently when I'm running missions because that's how I make lots and lots and lots of gold. So well, much so gold. Yes, yesterday I had finished everything. I'd done the weekly stuff. I've done everything I could possibly do. I'd done every world quest 
and I was like at 17 and a half to, to exalted. So I said, Nope, I've got three, 300,000, uh, resources. I'm just going to keep buying these things. Cause it's, Wait, it's, you had you know, 300,000, 300,000. Yep. I did. I don't now. How? how? Yeah, I'm actually really curious about that too because, like, did even I have like the blood shoulder enchants and stuff, and oh, like no, I'm I, just not getting anything. If you do, um, I don't. I only run a mission if I want what the mission gives. If I oh, don't, then I don't okay. do it. So I was looking at like the way it was working for me is I have uh, Crowley with me. Yeah. And I have two of the tokens that gives order resources when you complete a mission. I mean, when you complete a world quest. Oh, okay, so, that would do it. I do a ton of those, so I just I had like three hundred thousand resources. So I'm like, all right, I'll just spend them, and now I'm down to one hundred thousand resources because I spent two hundred thousand resources bumping up my rep. See, I'm See usually, I would totally do that if I could. Yeah, I'm usually floating somewhere between twenty one and twenty five k, and that's it on the order resources because I run <laughs> missions constantly. Um, again, because. The bonus gold for running those gold missions, you get seventeen fifty for that, and that's the bonus. That's that. That doesn't count the actual initial reward. So if the initial reward is like a little over a grand, and then I've got seventeen, that's almost three k gold for running, sending some dudes out. To go yeah, I don't get fetch those things. I don't see those missions a lot, so I don't. I mean, I I'll run them when they them, see them. Yeah, I usually get them two or three at a time. So I, I'll mm-hmm. just, like, run people out for that. And then if I'm not doing that, um, any that show the or, or have the um, Blood of Sar... Is it the Blood of Sargeras? Yeah, the Blood of yeah. Sargeras. I'll run those missions because I can turn around and turn in the Blood of Sargeras for more order resources. Because I don't do a lot of world questing these days just because all of my reputations are maxed out. All of them are. And I have the Paragon mounts from almost everybody. The only one I'm actively working on right now is Army of the Light because there's one Elec that I have left to get out of their stupid little Paragon box. (laughs) And once I have that, I'm done. I'm just, I'm done. There's no reason to do anything else. So I've been leveling these alt characters, the allied races. I'm having a lot of fun with Nightborn. Um, I like the way they look. I'm not so sure about the lore, but that... I'm going to get into on Know Your Lore, and actually, if you're listening to this show on the regular RSS feed as opposed to Patreon, there will be a Know Your Lore coming out either later today or it has come out already where I discuss the Nightborn in detail. Um, I have a lot of feelings about the Nightborn and the Void Elves, but that's that's kind of besides the point. So, uh, Joe, are you messing with allied races at all? Yes, I am, actually. Which ones? Mostly the Horde side ones, because I have done literally nothing for anything worth the Alliance reps. Like, I just, I've done nothing for the Army of Light, really, aside from, like, anything required to do raid or, like, the story. Okay, so you haven't ground out Exalted with the Argus reps. No, and I was I was totally thinking about doing, like, pulling a Rossi there, but, like, the fact that y'all are talking about, like, oh, I sometimes have, like, 25,000 Order Hall resources, I'm like, how? Yeah, I don't... I'm lucky I don't... if I have, like, 2K Oh, yeah. Um, Check your bank, (laughs) Joe, because if you don't, if you have a bunch of blood of Sargeras just sitting around. But that's the thing. I've spent all my bloods and I have the enchant. I'm averaging now one blood a week. I don't know what happened to drop rates. Yeah. But like I'm getting no bloods anymore. I get them from world quests. Yeah. World quests, world quests, drop them. And then again, every once in a while, there's an order hall mission. But the order hall missions are very expensive. I think they're like 1800 order hall resources to run the mission. However, 
if you run it at 200%, then what you get back is enough to buy, I think it's like 2,400 order hall resources. So you're gaining, you're spending a lot, but then you're like getting a profit out of the, it's, I play that game. I play the game where it's like, oh, the blood of Sargeras game. (laughs) That's how I get my order (laughs) hall resources now. See, for me, I just stuck, like I get about an extra 150 or whole resource every time I do a, a, a world quest because you have your dude with you. Yeah, yeah I don't. I, don't take I just anybody. do that. Yeah, I, I don't have a dude with me either anymore. I don't take anybody with me. I, I kind of avoided doing that. I don't know why. But anyway, this is all kind of besides the point for a lore podcast, which is what we are. <laughs> Welcome to Lore Watch, everybody. Um, so this week we've actually got some emails that we're going to go ahead and talk about. There's some really interesting ones in here that I feel like we're probably going to go off on a tangent and talk about for an hour, and we won't get to the rest of them. But that's okay, because we will save them in reserve. Um, it, as always, if you have any questions for Lore Watch uh, regarding... Joe, you don't have alpha access yet, do you? Sadly, no. Okay. Rossi and I both have alpha access. We are not very far. Well, actually, I don't know how far you are on the alpha, Rossi. I'm not that far on the alpha yet. So alpha questions are... We will entertain them if they are not spoiler-laden. It's just... It's early enough right now that I don't want to start talking about spoilers on Lore Watch just because... I don't want to alienate people who don't necessarily have alpha or don't want to hear about spoilers. Um, I don't like doing that too often, you guys. We will have a spoiler-laden show at some point, a little bit further on down the road in the alpha process, where we will talk about everything and we will warn the heck out of everybody so people that don't want to hear it can just skip it. And I'll let you know before that happens so you guys can send in those alpha questions. If you have alpha questions that are kind of lore related but not necessarily spoiler heavy, feel free to email those or any other questions about any other Blizzard title for that matter to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Put lore watch in the subject line so that we know that it's intended for the show and we may go ahead and feature it. Just make sure that you keep them fairly brief because we do read these emails on the air. So, first email that we've got. It actually doesn't have a name attached to it, which I was like, oh, boo. But at the same time, the question is really interesting. And this is one that I hear come up every now and again. Um, And in the wake of what has happened in Legion, I think we're a little bit more equipped to talk about it. So this one says, hey there. So Azeroth is sort of a Titan egg, right? She's in the planet maturing, getting ready to be born, feeding off Titan yolk or whatever. What's happen- what happens when she's born? Does the planet break apart? Does everybody living on the surface die? I'm wondering if saving Azeroth is even a goal we should be working toward, or if it's actually a bad thing for the races living on her. Do we know anything about how a Titan will go from world soul to actual being? Well, at- we know one thing. We have Argus to look at as an example. Yeah. That's like the only example we have right now. We know that Argus got pulled out of Argus and uh, taken to the seat of the Pantheon. Argus clearly wasn't fully developed yet. Um, wasn't at the stage of... I don't think he was of... allowed to fully develop, really. Oh, he was, he was very much stunted by mm-hmm. what was done to him. But he did leave the planet, and the planet didn't implode... Um, but I feel like Argus is also already like half part of it has already exploded out. So, eh? yeah, it's it is kind of a tricky one to think about. I my for my thoughts, I don't feel like in the normal progression of things that Titans just destroy the planets that they hatch out of because I don't think they hatch. I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think they form um, like they just kind of like mystically yeah. form outside of it right there's there's certainly some room to understand that you know that the when you when you oh god i can't remember the name of the radio play 
A Thousand Years of War, is that it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In A Thousand Years for War, we get like a little bit more detail on how world souls come to be. There's a, a flashback and we see that the the arcane essence of a Titan forms in the void. It comes into our world. The void when I said the void, I don't mean literally the void, I mean space. Um it forms out in the space great dark and then it, beyond, I yeah. think is what they call it. Uh, the world forms around it to protect it. And they they tend to come closer to stars so they can feed on the energy the stars put out. Uh, so there's, it didn't feel to me like that, that was going to be like a death sentence for the planet that formed around them. The planet that formed around them formed effectively a protective shell around it. Does that mean it's going to just hatch out of it like an egg? We don't know. We, we've seen very little to tell us on this yeah, one. It's not really like an egg so much as it's this little spark of essence and then things just are sort of drawn to it and form around it, forming a shell around it. It's not yeah, really I, like a Titan doesn't go out and lay an egg. That's not what happens here. But yeah, I was, I compared it to a pearl at one point. Yeah. Kind of like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah, but it's not the Titan's presence doesn't irritate the universe. It's just that it's there and it needs to be shielded until it's ready to come out. I honestly find myself wondering if, you saw how big Sargeras was. He was huge. And he was in his regular, like, that was his body. I found myself wondering if that was the planet he was. Because remember, Azeroth is supposed to be the most powerful of all the Titans. Yeah. Which means it might have a larger planet built around it than the other Titans did. Sargeras might have been smaller than Azeroth because the planet he was was smaller than Azeroth. It's possible that, you know, he had living things all over him the way we have living things inside of us and on top of us all the time. Like, you know, well, I was going to use like the, the entire final sequence of like the seat of the Pantheon, like that whole thing, I think also gives us a little uh, insight, I guess, too, because if you look at it as you're in that zone and you look back and you see Azeroth, like Sargeras is just this big billowing orange cloud. He doesn't really have a physical form at that point because he's altered himself to whatever he needed to be for that particular moment. And then as he's pulled back, that's when he sort of forms out of that cloud and then is ripped back to the seat. Well, that sort of got me thinking, too, about, you know, Azeroth a little bit, because we can see her already. And, I, and, I, and I've argued this for a while, where if you go to, to Deep Home and look up, you see the same thing that looks like all of the other Titan souls that we've seen uh, in now in... in uh, in Legion and the Raids and everything else where it's that, that constellation with that weird power nebula, you can see it uh, there. And I think that that's going to be the thing where like when she forms, if she forms, she's just going to essentially get kind of get sucked out almost into, into sort of the vacuum of space there and just form because nothing necessarily has to like explode to let her out. Also keep in mind that there's several exit points now that we have, unfortunately created over the years how many open wounds are in the planet's surface that go directly down to well we don't know how deep but they definitely you know transcend the different layers of whatever the 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 earth is in terms of of titan shell and we know that it's a direct pipeline to titan blood in several instances she could just seep out from there technically especially if sargeras is capable of doing that i don't see why another titan wouldn't either so i guess the biggest thing that we can kind of draw from all of this is that we don't actually I mean, we kind of have a clearer idea of what happens to Titans when they hatch. We know that the planet isn't destroyed. Like, we know that because Argus still exists, 
Argus is still there, even though the world soul is not. It was removed, taken to wherever. So removing that Titan soul isn't going to destroy the planet. And I don't, I don't know. I honestly, well, I don't uh, there's, know. There's a part during the, uh, the Seed of the Pantheon encounter with Argus. I mean, they directly talk to you and they say, you know, mortals, it's up to you. And there's the Titans obviously don't view mortal beings as inconsequential or inferior. They'll talk to you. No, I'm that's the job of the Titan Forge, cough, cough, Odin. Anyway. Yeah, but even even then, Amethyl is directly addressing you. Granted, you've kind of proved yourself, but nevertheless, it's not like he's, you know, you're not, we're not bugs to them. They do actually talk to us. They, they you know, Anar, Agrimar, even when Agrimar's evil, he talks to you. He doesn't just ignore you and try and step on you. He does talk to you. He does interact with you. Um, so there's, I would find it odd if the Titans just cracked open and killed like whatever was living on them. The whole point of reorigination was they do it when it, the world is completely corrupted by the old gods. They don't do it just because it's fun. They do it because the alternative is to allow the old gods to run rampant across a planet's surface. I now mean, I'm that's the whole... I'm curious, like, what is reor- reorigination? Because it's not destroying the world soul. You don't oh, want to destroy the world soul. We actually know this. We know this because of what happened to Uldum. Uh, okay. Reorigination sterilizes. It just sterilizes it everything. Breaks it down to like the most basic, you know, area so you could restart. So basically, it, if we're looking at like a pearl that's surrounded in sand or whatever, it it's basically like sandblasting it so it can start over again. Well, the way it worked when in in Chronicle, when you're talking about this, actually ties into the Zandalar and all that stuff too. When the Mogu decided to invade Aldum, the Zandalar were with them; they were helping. Um, yeah. The the people the uh, I can't remember the cat people from Aldum. The Tolvir. Yeah, the Tolvir who lived in Aldum basically went in and manually activated the halls of origination and basically scoured all life out of the area. They. They were inside the Halls of Origination. They were safe. Everything around it died, and the effect leaked out. It, it didn't just hit Uldum. Uh, there's a reason that that uh, Silithus and um, Again, Tenaris looked like that. Sandblasted it basically. Yeah, scoured. The it. only the only part that was safe was Ungoro because Ungoro had those pylons. The pylons kept Ungoro safe. Everything else for a long chalk. Uh, got turned into like blasted desert with no life in it. And then slowly, you know, you see that there's life in Silithus now, there's life in Aldum, there's life in Tenaris, but it's it's taken it this many thousands of years just to get to the point where it can support life to that level. I'm wondering if it like, because, I mean, you're looking at, okay, so you're looking at Aldum, connected to that is Tenaris, Silithus, up above Tenaris is Thousand Needles, which was pretty much devoid of life, and it had, like, all of those pillars and everything. And then north of that is the Barrens, and the Barrens is where you finally start to see, like, grass and stuff again. It could be. You'll notice the stuff that is shielded is the stuff that's behind Ungoro. Yeah. Feralos. Feralos. And Mulgore, uh, to a degree. And and Desolus, for all that it was pretty desolate. Desolus well, was... Desolus had its own problems. Yeah. But there is... We know that a reorigination basically just destroys. It, it, it takes it down to. It's like literally stripping everything off of an, of a something so you can start from the beginning. And it was. It's going to work on the entire planet. They used it in a more localized way, which is why it's messed up. 
Um, one of the whole things, there's like a whole thing in Chronicle about how them doing that is why it doesn't work properly. It's why uh, Deathwing actually had to go there. He had to try and send Tolvir in to, to get it to work because it was, they should not have used it. Yeah. yeah. They, they did what they did. They shouldn't have done. I'm kind of curious now though, because obviously that's the re origination device. That's the one that in theory, Algalon would have had to use had he sent off that signal successfully. Although I'm kind of wondering now what would have happened if Algalon had sent off that signal, because back in wrath, it seemed like a very, very dire situation where if he sent this off and it got to the Titans and they sent back the beacon thing, it said, yeah, go ahead and affect the reorigination. Then boom, everything is over. All life is over. It's just, it's done. But in later expansions, you know, they kind of expanded on that and it was kind of revealed that no, maybe that wouldn't have worked like we thought it would. Like maybe, maybe we didn't need to, <laughs> maybe we didn't need to defeat Algalon. Maybe if he had like sent that signal, he would have realized, oh, there's nobody on the other end. Or he would have realized, oh, I can't actually use this device, you know, like sit there and kick it or something, try and initiate some sort of repair. I don't know. But I always thought it was weird that Yogg was so okay with it. Yeah. Because Yogg yeah. was the one. Yogg was the one that set up. Yogg was whole perfectly thing fine. Loken was like the one who. Yogg was the one who had Loken wire himself in so that when he died, everything like the message sent off going, "Oh, everything's bad here," and that was totally Yogg wanted that. Yogg was totally okay with Loken being killed. Yogg was okay with reorigination happening. Why was it that he was aware of what would happen? Was it you know? Did they want to or see? Or was he what just cool with the idea of, oh well, you know, if everything's blown to smithereens, that means that we've got round two fight. See, I not, I don't necessarily still buy that. I think because I mean, I I also don't necessarily buy that reorigination is one hundred percent solely for old gods. I think it's when life deviates from the expected pathway. When there's something when, or, wrong. When there's just something wrong. Yeah. So I, and I, I think I think old gods never really factored into it, and I think that that's why Yogg was so gun ho about it because. To me, everything that's created as far as the life that happens on those planets, everything that's ordered on those planets is constructed from the bits of that planet and thus that Titan, kind of, right? So if you reoriginate, what are you doing with it? Are you just taking everything back down to the molecular level and melting it and sort of putting it back into the primordial soup? Because at that point, an old god would be 100% A-OK with being weaved into the, the primordial soup of a Titan. That's their goal. That's what they want to do from the very beginning. They want to corrupt it. What better way to corrupt it than to become part of it? Like it yeah, just accomplishes their goal so quickly. Reorigination doesn't actually do that. It doesn't melt it down. It, it sterilizes it. Well, yeah, like, we, we, do we? Go, yeah, we do. That's exactly what happened. But we don't. Uh, it's, it's in Chronicle. You can go read it. It's what it does. You can you can argue whether or not they've not told us other stuff, but it strips an area de devoid of life. That's why Oldham is the way it is. That's the whole purpose. Right, of but my, my, my question is what happens to all that stuff? It's not just gone because it can't be like, it has to be, it has to be broken down or done something because even when you destroy something like uh, even to use game mechanics as sort of a, a thing, you destroy a crafted item, you get obliterum, right? Like it breaks down into a base component. What happens with it after that is a whole other story. But I'm saying like, to me, I don't think it just ceases to exist. I think that it, I think that it breaking down and becoming like, you know, barren, sterile matter, that makes sense to me. 
Like I that's that's where I'm attacking it from. That's the way I'm viewing it. Okay. Regardless, I guess we kind of have an answer to that. Excuse me, I had to cough. Mm, I don't know what's going on today. Coming down with something. Anyway, um, as, as far as that goes, though, with the reorigination thing, I mean, had Algalon actually sent off that signal, what would have happened? I'm, I'm curious. I'm like, I, my thoughts always been that he would have then re- been like, okay, no one's responding because we know the Titans really wrong. Yeah, uh, the, the Titans couldn't respond. So he would have had to go down to the reorigination place himself where he would have run into the corrupted guardians. Because there, there are Titan Watchers in that place who were kind of working for the, the fallen, the second Tolvir, the ones working for Deathwing. He would yeah, have run right into those they weren't working for Deathwing at that point because Deathwing had Some of them were. Deathwing was, hadn't was... emerged, though. Uh, well, oh, well, know, I guess we... that doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, it's... The problem here is that we're talking about timeline stuff that's really hard to work out. Yeah. Like... How long was Deathwing subverting the Tolvir before we got there and saw it? I mean, he had the whole thing where he was lifting the curse of flesh, and we saw him do it to some of them, but he did it to others before we got there. And it's one of those he would have gotten Algalon would have gotten to the Halls of Origination. There were some of the the watchers who were there were working with the the fallen Tolvir. Others were trying to keep people out. Just you know, it's our job to keep you out. Stay out. Yeah. And. What would, would Algon been like, what's going on? And they would have been like, oh, somebody activated this thing like 20,000 years ago and well, not 10,000. I don't know. It was before the Sundering. Someone activated this thing and now this whole area is lifeless and they they want to come back in and do it again and we're trying to stop them. And Algon would be like, what is going on? Where are the Titans? Why is everything <laughs> messed up? This world is so messed up. <laughs> what about that old god you guys had next door? Oh, we haven't heard about that thing in a long time. We don't know what's going on over there. He goes over there. What do you mean it's loose? It's loose. It's just plain loose. I mean, it's... Silithus in general would have been like a nightmare for him. There'd be like old, there's Naraki all over the surface. It's like I the kind of wonder whatever. There. There's part of me that kind of wonders whatever happened to Algalon because there was that, uh, oh, that special issue that came out of the comic series after the comic series ended and it was supposed to like kind of reboot everything because I guess they were going to do something new but they ended up not doing it. They just released those two graphic novels instead. Um, and in that special edition, Algalon is presented as he's he's wandering the world now or not necessarily wandering the world but he's on Azeroth and he doesn't really want to leave because he wants to observe and see what exactly makes us tick because we're weird we're, we're not like anything that's ever popped up on a Titan world before and he's interested in that um, and we kind of got we kind of got a little bit of a peek into that with that whole speech that he gave after we defeated him where he was like, has any, has, have any of them loved life as you do, you know, where he's that really good speech, that really amazing speech that he gave, um, where he was just sort of taken aback by the fact that we had free will and we were willing to act on that kind of thing to save our world. It To him, this was extraordinary and weird and different and he wanted to keep watching us just to see what we do you were guys, doing. Do you guys read the uh, dungeon journal for Harboron? Uh, yeah. Which, which one oh, yeah. is Harboron? The second boss in... Um, Maw of Souls. Maw of Souls. Uh, he's a counselor. Oh, yeah. yeah that's kind of... That kind of made me wonder. That go dungeon ahead, is just bizarre to begin with. Anyway, go ahead, Rossi. Rossi? Yo, sorry. My thing's cut off for a sec. Oh, okay. I said go ahead. Um, I just always wonder... Like, what's the deal with that? Like, Harboron, if Harboron's a Constellar like Algalon, 
do the Constellars, like, where are they on the pecking order of Titan servants? You know, There's like... different kinds, apparently, because Algalon was part of one sect of Constellar, and then there are other ones that are around, floating around. There's that in, in the, uh, oh gosh, in the Argus encounter, he summons I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, and, he, brings and... up, he calls like a dozen of them. Yeah, and they are essentially there to protect him, um, whereas Algalon, Algalon is like, he's an observer, he's just he apparently just kind of zips around and watches things. He goes from world to world and watches things. Although what other worlds was he at? Where, where has he seen? Cause that, that final speech that he gives where he was like, you know, talking about a thousand thousand worlds or however, or a million million, however many worlds it was that were just extinguished because reorigination happened. It It's like, well, how long were the Titans on this journey? Like how many worlds did they touch? How many world souls were out there? Because he says one th- thing, Chronicle kind of tells us another, like gives us the impression that there weren't that many world souls out there to begin with. But I don't know. It's weird. I love Algalon. I kind of wish that we would see him again, just because I want to know what kind of information he's gathered. Like, what is he thinking now that he's had several expansions to kind of see who we are and what we're up to in the world? Um, Particularly in the wake of this expansion that's coming up where it's like, yet again, Horde and Alliance kicking each other's butts instead of paying attention to anything else that happens to be going on. And you would also think that Algalon would be kind of invested in the state of the world soul and what's going on with it. And it's obvious that bad things are afoot. I mean, we have a giant sword stabbed into the planet. Anyway, this is all kind of off topic. So I think I'm going to go to second email here. Uh, the second email is from Kazrith, a worgen druid on Argos Lane, who says, Whatever happened in the Nightwell, is it still on? Or did we turn it off as part of the Nighthold? It seems like a big part of why Taranda is mistru- mistrustful of the Nightborn and why they joined the Horde is because of her fears that they'd use the Nightwell to go magic crazy like the Night Elves did once upon a time. But that only holds if the Nightwell is still on. Thoughts? Um, it's still on. No, it's not. It, well, it, it is, is still on. It, it isn't, it's and it less it, powerful than it was. Right? It is, and it isn't because the thing is, is like when you finish everything, when you finish all of the Suramar stuff, and then you finish Nighthold, there's like a scene that plays out where you go and you go check out the Nightwell, and they have to make a choice, and Thalissa is there, and they're talking, and she mentions that the. Um, Oh, Amonthul, what was his thing? The Eye thing, of Amonthul. The Eye of Amonthul, the thing that they used to empower the Nightwell in the first place and make it into the thing that it is. That has been removed. We took it to Dalaran so that we could use it mm-hmm. to protect the whole world and everything. When we did that, the Nightwell began to decay. And the impression was given that they could either find some way to stabilize it and keep it going, or they could just let it die. And Thalissa said, let's just let it die. So is it dead yet? No. But is it dying? Yes. And are they dependent on it? No, because they've got the tree now. So they don't there is, need there the Nightwell for though. sustenance. There's what? one other thing, though. What? Um, when you take a Shadow Priest there, the Shadow Priest's dagger, the evil dagger that's constantly telling us things, uh, it makes the point that the Nightborn were drinking the lifeblood of the planet that the night the night well was made out of the well of eternity. Well, yeah. They used the water from the well of eternity. There is no guarantee that it will actually die. It's unstable and they can't control it. 
And that's the thing that they were trying to, I can't remember her name. She's the other one besides Thalissa. Valtois. Yeah. Valtois is the one who wanted to try and stabilize it. And yeah, Thalissa she was, was the one, one who wanted to get it working again so that they could use it as they had used it in the past as like, you know, the well of eternity, that kind of thing. And Thalissa said, no, let's, let's not go down that road. Let's not do that. Um, yeah, we'll see what actually ends up happening with this thing because we don't actually know what happens to Nightwells when you take the Eye of Amatul out of them because we never had one before. We never had one before, and like I said, the Nightwell it wasn't being used to like fuel magic so much as it was it was food. It was food for the Nightborn. It was what they it was what they fed off of to survive. That was pretty much it. So when you see nightborn that have been cast out and they're withering it's because they're kind of they're starving to death essentially that's what's happening they're starving to death and they're losing their wits and they're losing everything else that made them what they are um what we did with the arkandor was we we came up with an alternative solution they eat the fruit of the arkandor and then all of a sudden oh they don't need the night well for sustenance anymore that connection that they made that they kind of cultivated over thousands and thousands of years of being isolated it's no longer there as far as Taronda and her feelings about the Nightborn, again, this is something I'm going to get into in To Know Your Lore, but at the same time, I, I feel like it's worth addressing here. I don't think it was necessarily the using the Nightwell to go crazy or anything. I think it was just a general mistrust because these people, the Nightborn, are the last remnants of Highborn society. And we all, well, the, the Night Elves know what happened with highborn society way back when during the war of the ancients they made it as shara made this deal with the burning legion and ended up trying to you know carve out a gigantic chunk of her own people while bringing the burning legion to azeroth and doing all of this other really terrible stuff all while using siphoning the powers of the well of eternity was the well of eternity bad not necessarily it was just they kind of went above and beyond like way above and beyond um and that whole thirst for power is kind of what led them to the burning legion in the first place what taranda is worried about and it's it's a justifiable worry i think it is honestly she's worried that if they ally with these guys it's going to be war of the ancients part two and she's justified in that because what did elison do when push came to shove mm. she made a deal with the burning legion to to like preserve her own people yes because she thought she was doing the right thing yes but when push came to shove what did she do? She allied with the Burning Legion. She did exactly what Ashara did and what split the world asunder to begin with. So Taranda's not exactly out of place to mistrust these guys because they did it once. Once was bad enough. And then they went and did it again. And when things got really bad, they turned to the outside races. They went to the Night Elves and said, hey, can you do us a solid and help us out? And they said, yeah, we can help you. But we don't trust you. So there's an element there that I do understand. Like, I do understand where Taronda is sitting. But at the same time, it's like, why would you do that? You know, why would you push potential allies? Well, Rossi and I had a really lengthy discussion about this on Twitter when we came up. Okay, you two just go ahead. I'm going to mute myself. (laughs) You guys talk this out because I want to hear it. 
the part that I the part that I don't agree with, and I and I understand where her concern is coming from to a certain degree, but she doesn't exhibit that same concern for the druids. And you know, there was a big section of those that decided to go all fiery and help out some old god servants there. And you know, that was also partially Fandral's fault, and Fandral was kind of a little Lulu anyway. But at the same point, that's still part of her people, right? And it was in both of in both him and Ejara were born from self-serving desires, right? He wanted to see his son again, like that was totally selfish and is his route that led him down that path of, of crazy. And Ejara just was like, yeah, I'm the most powerful thing that ever existed. And I'm going to keep doing this because I can like that's that's what I don't get. Like those two instances, you wanted to hate on those groups. I can kind of understand it. But then you have this group. These that are act- those groups, though. But then the thing. but she no, doesn't no. hate her own people. No, she doesn't. She very clearly I mean, doesn't hate her own people. She hates the highborn. She still doesn't even. Fandral like wasn't highborn. No, no, no. Right now, we're talking about these people. The people, the nightborn, are the highborn. These aren't. These, they, when you say magic crazy like the night elves did once, these are those night elves. But they, these that's, are. No, no, that's no, no, the no, part no, that no, I don't no. agree with because they're not they highborn are, anymore. They're nightborn. They are completely they different. They are physically they changed. They have ten thousand years of continuity. Saying that they've physically changed doesn't change the fact that they've kept the society going for ten thousand years after it fell everywhere else. This is the one place on Azeroth where you can go and see the city of the highborn because here it is. They kept it going. They didn't change it. They just perpetuated it. All they are are the same people that made this choice twice. Elisand worked for Ashara collecting artifacts and didn't break with Ashara until she finally realized, oh, these demons are going to get us too. They're not just going to kill all those peasants. Well, that's a problem. I'd rather not die as well. I'd best work against them. She didn't care for the night elves. She cared for herself and the highborn. Sure. And that's who they still are. Why would Taronda trust them? They're the people she rebelled against. They're the people she actually led a fight against. This is is my gripe with how they write Taronda in general, is that she seems to have no concept of growth as far as other people are concerned. Like, even when you turn in the final thing with Illidan, like, with that final crystal that you bring back and that final sequence and everything that's there, like... Okay, Malfurion's like, okay, yeah, maybe it he he changed. Maybe he grew up. Maybe things weren't exactly as I've seen them. Maybe I was too blind to to certain things. Like he allows for this sort of like growth. He's written in this 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 sort of aspect where he's he himself has also matured somewhat. Maybe I, I still don't necessarily care for everything that he's done and the choices that he's made. But like Tehran seems very, very stuck. And that's the part that I hate. It's not even like in, in the representation of it is like, even if she would calmly explain to her, you know, it's, you have to understand everything that I've been through, everything that I've seen, you were there for this. I'm not ready to trust you yet, but it's not that she doesn't say yet. She says, I'm never going to trust you because you are absolutely going to become exactly like Alessandra. There is no wavering in that whatsoever. There is no, there is no merit that she allows for the fact of, yes, I saw you fight for your people. I saw you break from this corruption. I've saw you work to break your people's addiction and bring them back to the brink of extinction. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let me finish. There's nothing that allows for any of that in the conversation she has with her. And that's my problem. That's it's not exactly even... how she should look at it. Because none of that's there. They didn't fight to save their people. They didn't break the corruption. They begged for help from outsiders to fix their problems. The problem isn't Taronda. It's you. 
You want to have a positive look on the Nightborn, so you're going to give it one. And if Taronda's not on board, she's the problem. But no, she's right. Her, her, everything she says is justified. There's no when when you're talking about Illidan, somebody who she went out and freed, and what did he do? He immediately ate a demon head. That was the first thing he did. She gets him out to fight for their people, and he turns into a monster immediately. It's the first thing he does. So yeah, she's not immediately on board with the idea that Illidan might have changed because she's seen this too many frequent sure. times with him. Sure, I, and, that, and, that, and that's fine. But again, it's she's it, it's. I don't agree that everything she says is justified because she's reacting. And and here's the thing. And I know that this is an unpopular opinion and I don't really care because this is just the way I view it. She's not acting like a leader. She's not acting like a diplomat. She's acting like a person who is unable to divorce herself from her own prejudices or her own experiences long enough to look at something objectively. And I'm not saying that she's absolutely wrong. I'm saying that the way that it is presented does not allow for her to have any sort of growth in that direction. And that's my problem. Like, it doesn't seem like she's looking at things objectively. It always comes off like the fact that she's, she's not making a smart decision. She's making an emotional decision. And that's how it is. Even when we're leveling, even when we're going after Malfurion, the decisions she's making are not smart decisions. They are not objective decisions. She's running headlong into danger because her emotions are telling her to do so. And like, I get that, but you see growth from, uh, you know, Varian throughout the various expansions where that becomes less the norm for him. Uh, you see that even with Anduin, where he's becoming less and less a, a creature of his emotions and more of, is this the right decision? Is this what's going on? You see those conflicts in them. Even Greymane is starting to go into that route. And every single other faction leader has sort of that that extra layer to them except for her and that's my so problem. Sylvanas does? I I said almost every. I oh, didn't you didn't say you said every of, single other faction. I said leader. almost every single. And Sylvanas Sylvanas is a complicated mess of a whole other magnitude that I'm, I'm still not convinced you 100% no, she's Sylvanas. I'm going to strip say that first off I think it's interesting that Taranda in order to mature and grow according to the way you're looking at it, has to just go along with these people doing the same stupid things she's seen happen multiple you're, times. No, you're, you are, you are oversimplifying no. what I'm saying. I'm saying that the way that they presented her argument was very, it didn't show anything other than, well, this is what I feel is going it to happen. Was so this is gonna happen. It, yes, was, exactly. it, it was very two-dimensional. Yes, exactly. It was two-dimensional. Yes. And Joe does have a point in that I don't think that character development wise Taronda's been granted the same level of maturity as her fellow leaders and she's older than all of them except for Velen. and that's my problem it's not that i think that her decisions are necessarily incorrect and i think that they may be the best decisions for the people but the way that they're presented are very two-dimensional thank you Anne. that is exactly what i was trying to say like that that's it that's and it. i, I just want to see some more meat to it i get that i get that and i also get like i said I get why Tyrande's opinions are justified because she's seen firsthand what happens when all of this goes on. And Suramar, to the night elves, Suramar must have been kind of a horrifying thing to see because it's not just this is a remnant of highborn society. Like there were probably some night elves that called that place home once upon a time. And it's been kept in stasis, almost like a ship in a bottle where has it grown? Has it changed? Yes and no, because the people in it have changed, very physically changed, like there's been some serious weirdness going on. But other than that, all of these pieces of highborn society are still weirdly intact, 
all of the same customs, all of the same social standings, all of the same things that existed so many thousands of years before are still there. And for some of these night elves, it's new and it's different and it's weird because this is like a snapshot of history that they're looking at. And for some of these night elves, it's like, it's like they never left. And that's terrifying because that's the place where all of that stuff came from. That's the reason why there are split continents on the planet. That's the reason why the Burning Legion is coming back right now. Like, it all comes down to these people. So I understand Taronda's hesitation. Like, it is justified. It's totally justified. At the same time, though, I'm kind of a little disappointed that she couldn't look at the situation in Suramar, the whole insurrection thing, and go okay, this faction of people, where they stand in the world is where Malfurion and myself and the priestesses of Loon and all of these other people, they're standing where we stood way back once upon a time. And maybe give them a little slack, you know? Except, no, if anything, they deserve less slack. Because what happened 10,000 years ago when they tried to bring the Highborn into their society? Yeah, they set off magical a magical sto- storm. Magical storm and all that. I, I yeah. get that, Rossi. I get that. But I also get the fact that Taronda turned around and said, oh, hey, magic users, you can go ahead and come back. Go ahead and teach some mm-hmm. more night elf mages. Mm-hmm. This is probably a good thing to have happen back in Cataclysm. Like, how come it's good for that section of Highborn, but suddenly Suramar is too far? She didn't particularly there's want no, those guys back either, though. There's like, no... This- very much a after Malfurion comes what back. What I am see- talking about here, though, Rossi, is that there's like... There's no root like she's doing two different contradicting things. It's very hypocritical mm-hmm. of her to say these guys are okay and these guys are not. Like, where is the line and why are you drawing that line? And I do I mean, I get I get her hesitation and I get her justification, but at the same time, it's kinda what Joe was saying, where it's like she's her justifications for these de- decisions are being presented as very two-dimensional and she's not displaying the same level of maturity as these human dudes that have only been around for a blink of an eye when she's been around for thousands of years and seen all of this stuff like yeah and and i just want to say like i love her as a character i love the character as, yeah don't get me yeah, wrong and, and, and I do it's, not like I hate her. it's not like i dislike her that's 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 where my frustration is born from right it's because i wish that they would allow her to sort of it, 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 she's the embodiment of the fear that i had for jaina Right. Like she she's sort of that stuck in that weird, hypocritical two dimensional state where, like, I think she's getting bounced around between writers and nobody's really invested into her. And that's the part that hurts, like, because I really think she could be amazing. And like the stuff with like the end times and the 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 instance you go through where you interact with her, like the voice lines and the, the hurt and everything like that. It was very deep and very, very like visceral. And it was it was powerful. And then you have the rest of everything with her, which is just kind of like, yep, she exists. Let's move on with our lives. It's like. I want to see her grow, and I felt that they did a very big disservice with this opportunity here. That's this all. all kind of ties back to just the the kind of the problems that I've had with Taronda, and it's this is you know a lot of this is just me. But when you go back to the War of the Ancients trilogy, the way that Knack wrote Taronda was as a young and fairly naive night elf woman. Which she was at that point. She had only just started down the path that she'd chosen for herself for adulthood or whatever. And she found herself thrust into this role of leader at a very young age. Which, okay, totally makes sense. Uh, And the way that he wrote her, the whole kind of naivety a little bit, that kind of thing, 
it fit in the context of those books because those books were being written about something that happened 10,000 years ago. She was young in those books. And then you get to Warcraft 3, and the Tyrande that we see in Warcraft 3 is somebody who is definitely 10,000 years older, has seen a lot, a lot in her time, has dealt with a lot in her time, and there are certain things that she will not take anymore. Like, oh, I don't know, the Burning Legion showing up again. <laughs> She's not happy about it, right? Um, somewhere in between what we saw in Warcraft 3 and what we saw in even the novel Stormrage. Uh, Nat came back and he wrote the novel Stormrage and that took place uh, after... Was that after Wrath? Did that take place after Wrath? I think it was after Wrath. Do you remember, Rossi? It was after Wrath. It was after Wrath. Okay, so Tyrande comes back in the novel Stormrage and the Tyrande that we've got is now... It's like War of the Ancients Tyrande Part 2 with none of the Tyrande that we saw in Warcraft 3. So there's like this drastic personality shift between these three things. And they seem to have taken the Stormrage Tyrande and run with her instead of looking at the Warcraft 3 Tyrande and running with her. So there's like this, it's like she's over 10,000 years old. She's, she's, she's up there in years like Malfurion, even Malfurion and Illidan, they're, they're all of an age where are they younger than Velen? Yes, but they are so far removed time-wise from the rest of the world that there should be some kind of wisdom there. Malfurion doesn't display that wisdom very often. Neither does Tyrande. And it drives me nuts because both of them both of them do a bunch of boneheaded stuff where it's like, have you guys learned nothing in 10,000 years or what's going on here? So it's not, I mean, I don't have a problem with the character. I like the concept of the character. It's just that I wish that they would look at the character and kind of think about what that character has seen, how old they are, and how they should be acting and age them appropriately. Because right now it's like, let's go ahead and write Malfurion and Tyrande like they're in their, you know, mid-30s or something instead of 10,000 plus. <laughs> it doesn't quite work. Um, I just plain don't agree with the idea that if she was behaving age appropriately, she'd act differently than this. I straight up don't. And I, I'm not convinced at all by this. It doesn't work. Because if she was acting like Warcraft 3 Tyrande, she'd have had them killed. Probably. It, it, this isn't immature. It's I actually don't know. I'm just, pretty I'm, restrained. I'm saying, I'm saying that if she had learned anything through her years and years and years, if she had learned anything through this strange new alliance that she had joined with her people and experienced all of these other cultures around the world who are now suddenly her allies, whereas they spent the majority of their years in seclusion. If she had learned anything about those experiences, it would be to maybe look at the world with wiser eyes. And I don't think she's necessarily looking at the world with wiser eyes. I think that she's making a very knee-jerk reaction. And I don't know if that's necessarily the kind of actions that an established leader who's been leading for so long would be making, like right it, off the bat. It's just, it's, it, it's just not... I go back to Warcraft 3 again. Look at her first moves upon meeting humans. They kill them. Right, they don't, because they, they spent 10,000 years in isolation, Rossi. It's only, and it's only been how many years now? It's been it's like 30, 35 years or something not like since, that. Not since the Third War. 
Oh, so third, war the third war. Was, okay, never that's mind. when she met them. I'm sorry. She, <laughs> she met humans. <laughs> I'm going back war. to like year zero, and no, it wasn't yeah, year zero. Yeah. So it's more like 20 years or something like that. I don't think it's even been that long. Um, like it was four, four years had passed since the mortal races banded together at the beginning of Warcraft. If we assume it's a year for year thing, it's been 17 or 18 years. Yeah, about 20 years, or in the 20 year timeline. But in that in that period of time, we've had so much history crammed into it we've had so many eventful uh, things going on with it this is, this is the person who when she first met strangers decided to kill them and has gotten to the point where she can make alliances with them i think i don't know i feel like we're not really giving Taronda her due we're acting like she should just change as fast as we change because she should change that i don't fast. think that she should change necessarily i think that her character is kind of broken. And I think that her character isn't showing any kind of growth, like mental growth or maturity. I don't think that she's looking at the rest of the world in a way. I mean, if that's going to be her knee jerk reaction, how does that make her any better than Fandral? See, I don't think that is her knee jerk reaction. I honestly, see, how does that make her any better than Fandral? What did Fandral want? Fandral wanted Night of Supremacy. He didn't want to deal with any of the races. He didn't want to be in the alliance. He looked at, down on everyone and said, "These guys aren't even worth our time. I don't know why we're doing this." How does that make her any better than him? Like, does that just make her Fandral part two? I, I don't. See, that's the thing is, I don't think that that's what she's been doing. But I do think going back to like when Joe mentioned the leveling experience, you know, how she, she didn't learn and she made decisions based on her emotions. What does she do when she's confronted with the ultimate emotional decision? When she said, you can come save your husband or you can go save the temple. What does she do? She doesn't just go with her heart. No, she goes and she's, saves the temple. She says he's going to have to take care of himself. So I don't think this is a character who hasn't changed mm. or grown. She made a decision based on her duty. She picked the temple over her husband, knowing think... that he'd have to take care of himself. I don't think Taronda is as simple or as easy as Fandral, just because she doesn't necessarily want to forgive the Nightborn, or for that matter, the Highborn. She let the Highborn in more or less, well, they can't do anything. They don't have, their magic is relatively, it's just magic. They don't have any real power. They can't do anything like they once did. They're, they're basically coming to beg us for help. I'll kind of allow it and I will ever will give them the hairy eyeball and we'll watch them and we won't trust them immediately. That's what she gave. Oh, I can't remember her name. Not Elisand. Thalistra. Thalistra. That's the deal. She basically offered Thalistra. We'll watch you and I don't trust you. And was that smart to say? I don't know. That's quite frankly, you can argue that it was stupid and she should have been like, oh yeah, you can come in and kept her, her, her quiet or said, no, you can't come in. The problem I that I have, though, is that the context of that conversation, it cuts off at that point, And then Talisra says, I guess she was no longer interested in furthering that discussion. Like, nothing else is said as far as, well, did you reach out to her again? Did you guys have another conversation? Because the con the exchange that they had was very much, it was, like you said, Rossi, it was kind of the same deal she offered the Highborn, where it was like, okay, we'll keep an eye on you. And, yeah, and that's, that's but not, beyond me... that, it's like, well... Did the Nightborn go to Tyrande to try and further that relationship? Did Tyrande shut them down? What was said there? Well, we don't know because we only have Thalissa telling somebody else about it. We don't actually have the scene, you know? So to a certain degree, we'll never. But I, I don't know. I, I keep coming back to this. I don't see her as wrong or immature in this. As there have been times I didn't like her portrayal in Storm Age. I'm not defending that. But I think 
what we've had of Taronda in game has kind of fluctuated a bit. We had her in in mists where she's very aggressive in the scenario where Varian's proving to be a king, which is one of those things where somebody had a job for Varian, so it ended up being you know Taronda's turn. I don't and don't really understand that one. But yeah. when you actually see Taronda at Orgrimmar, she's an effective leader. She's decisive. She puts. I'll just say this. She puts Vol'jin in his place, which nobody else had done. It was Taronda who said, shut up. I'm not here for you. You mean nothing to me. I'm here to save my people. And it's the only one, the only alliance leader who told him off while he was basically being a jackass. If you did the initial opening quests for the for the trolls, they had to go back and put in more dialogue to give him to back him off because he was basically telling the alliance what to do like they were his peons. It was Taronda of all Alliance leaders who stepped up and told him, back off. It's always been Taronda who does that role. Yes, she's 10,000 years old and much, much older than, for, for, let's be quite frank, she's much, much older than either Malfurion or Illidan. Illidan spent 10,000 years in a hole. He didn't have any experiences. He was in a hole. <laughs> he wasn't doing anything. Uh, yeah. You know? Malfurion was taking naps, a series of extended naps. He didn't actually have any life experience. Who was the one actually holding together Night Elf Society for that 10,000-year 10 10, period of time by herself? Taronda, with her, her adopted daughter in, in tow, basically leading the army. So, I, I don't know. I am, I am not in agreement that she's not a mature character. I'm, there's certainly been times she hasn't been betrayed well. There's been writing flubs. I'll give you that. But I don't see her behavior in this expansion, and, and certainly going into Battle for Azeroth, I don't see her behavior as immature in the slightest. I think she was right. Straight up right. There's nothing wrong with what she said. I back her on it 100%. Well, I guess the, this is the, the point where we agree more, to disagree and move on. Yeah, I agree. Regardless. One, one unrelated thing, though, but that I did want to point out, the, uh, the Void Elf stuff doesn't really follow from the Nightborn stuff, but it's in the same thing it's in the same the void scenario? elf stuff is is that's actually um the other thing that i'm doing this evening is finishing up a know you lore that will run tomorrow for people that are listening on patreon and for people that aren't listening on patreon uh it ran last monday but um there's a lot going on with the void elf stuff that i don't necessarily agree with either that uh, i'm like why are like... you making these decisions that doesn't make any sense and, and you almost have to do the nightborn stuff to to really get also the full Void Elf story, which is weird to me, because there's a yeah. big component in there that that ties into that. It, I mean, you can do the Void Elf stuff without doing the Nightborn stuff, and you can still get what's going on. You get the general idea of what's going on. You get more of a look into it if you do the Nightborn stuff and then do the Void Elf uh, Void Elf stuff. Um, but it's kind of the same thing, only a different direction. Because right now it seems like everybody's listening to Ramath, and I don't know why. <laughs> I'm kind of like, that guy? We're listening to that guy. We're taking advice from that guy. That guy was like up Kael'thas's rear end, <laughs> like so far. Like, this is the guy that taught you guys how to siphon magic off of demons, but we're okay with listening to him right now and having him tell us what's bad. Like, that's good. <laughs> so there's just, there's an element with the Void Elves where I'm just kind of giving Lorthamar the side eye and going, okay, what's going on with you, buddy? Like, what's going on with you? Because the things that you were concerned with not more than two, three years ago are suddenly no longer your concern? Or what? Like, what's happening here? Um, 
like they're sitting there condemning the void and talking about how it's a terrible thing and meanwhile all of the blood elf shadow priests are just hiding in the bushes hoping nobody finds them like what's going on here i don't um, i gotta be upfront is i feel like the void elf nightborn thing was basically in a situation where game choices trumped lore yeah maybe a little i think so too yeah a little bit because they wanted to have night elf looking elves on the horde side and blood elf looking elves on the alliance side but different and so they did that and now it's just it's like i i honestly i don't know how you could have ever had the nightborn on the alliance with the night elves i don't see how that's possible the having night elf mages bringing the highborn in for that stretched my credibility pretty hard like it is one of those weird decisions that i never really got so i don't know but void elves the void elf story in general because i've seen it now is bizarre it's it's kind of a little weird. And the other thing is that Lorthamar is very, very dismissive of Alaria, like to the point of being absolutely offensive. Part of me gets that because Alaria, the last time Alaria was in Silvermoon or anywhere around there was during the Second War. Like she left during the Second War and didn't come back. So she didn't see the fall of Silvermoon. She didn't see the Sunwell get destroyed. She didn't see its restoration. Like, she didn't see any of this. And she's coming back and saying, hey, maybe we should make nice-nice with the Alliance. Okay, yeah, I can see where that would be kind of offensive. It's like, yeah, you've been gone all of these years. You've missed all of these things, and that's what you come here with? Like, that's the first thing you bring up? How about, hi, nice to see you. How's the city? You know, (laughs) that kind of thing. Yeah, that I, I get just... a little bit. I get a little bit, but you would think that they would treat her with a little more respect. The thing that I don't get is that Lorthamar is so immediately dismissive about the idea of having anything to do with Anne Woodren when back in Missa Pandaria, he was actually considering defecting and joining the Alliance. Like, this was something that he was actively considering. Did he do it? No. Why? Because Jaina kicked a bunch of blood elves out of Dalaran, and that did not go over well. It went over like a lead balloon. What Lorthamar learned from that, though, it wasn't just, we can't join the Alliance. It was... We have Garrosh sending dangerous Mogu artifacts to the middle of the city, heedless of what kind of damage they would bring to my people, just because my people happen to be handy with magic. So we can't necessarily trust the Horde, and we obviously can't necessarily trust the Alliance either. So maybe it's time we stand on our own. And when Lorthamar said that, I was like, yes, okay, that's a leader I can get behind. That's cool. I I, I don't mind him at all. What I don't get, though, is that all of these guys seem to be really gung-ho about protecting the Sunwell and and shielding it and, and preserving it because they got it back again and all this other stuff. When they just like casually either forget or they just don't think about the fact that the whole reason that the Sunwell is whole again is because of the actions of the Draenei leader of the Alliance. That's why they have the Sunwell. Because the Alliance intervened, Velen came in, dunked a maroon nugget into this thing and brought it back to life. Like, it was his doing. They wouldn't have been able to do it on their own. So what? what is the problem here? <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, I'm wondering if we're going to get more of that in the next... Because I had that same question, right? Like Leodrin, her attitude. When she was the first person, like on Draenor, she mm-hmm. showed up to help the Draenei over there in Akadun. But if you notice, the aggression that they have isn't towards the Draenei. It's specifically towards the humans. Like, 
what they're seeing and the, the sort of the the aggression that they have in that scenario. This is why I'm curious because it all seems to center around mainly Stormwind. Like that that seems to be where their gripe is, and I'm wondering either a what happened or b what's going to happen because they don't they don't mention anything about hating the Drenai and like to the to that effect like i'm fairly confident if the Drenai and 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 you know the blood elves were like we're kind of done with our respective things you guys want to just like party up and just kind of like have our own little bastion islands like that would be almost acceptable to me in some regard because like I think that they kind of have almost like a mutual respect for each other at this point. They felt each other out and it's sort of like a thing now. Um, like if there was ever going to be a third faction, it's basically going to be those two is what I'm saying. Um, but like, I, it just seems very interesting that the majority of the ire towards anything Alliance related in those scenarios is specifically humans. And I, I'm really curious why or where it's going. If you notice that if you look at the two the the various allied races, the hordes allied races are two that were introduced in this expansion. Yeah. And the uh, technically speaking, the the alliances two allied races are the Burning Crusade poster box people. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. I mean, it's a little weird that you know we got more more Draenei, okay, and yet another group of elves. Um, but. One of the things well, I've you look at about... what the horde got. The horde got more of those another torn, group of people, more of those torn people, and another group of elves. So I mean, no. But what I'm what I'm really saying is like, I don't agree with Joe on the concept of the 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 blood elves. It they that they're perfectly fine with the Drenai. They owed the Drenai a debt, and so they you know Liadrin responded. But they've the blood elves as a whole have never been particularly warm towards the Drenai. They. Just and that's been. weird because yeah. the Sunwell would not exist well, without them. But that's the that's thing: what, the Horde are very yeah. good. At, the Horde are very good at compartmentalizing what one person does versus what a group of people does. Like, for instance, Horde, you know, Thrall felt really bad about what happened to Velen, and yet never really stopped to think about the fact that you know orcs murdered nine tenths of the Draenei. Well, he wasn't and around he, for that, but yeah. yeah he's, when he's he never learned really... about it, he was horrified. Because if you read Rise of the Horde... Yeah, mm-hmm. but then you look, you, you see the whole thing in, in Tides of War... Not Tides of War, uh, War Crimes, yeah. when they're showing it and Thrall's like getting all weird about it. And it's like, dude, this is what you actually did. This is what Garrosh did, tried to, redo, to do again. Because it is the Horde as far as he knows. And you've never actually known that or understood it. There's a really weird disconnect where nobody seems to like remember the past very well. Yeah, like, the, blood, the blood elves yeah, are. I feel like that goes elves, everywhere, though, right? Like that's like, all factions. The, yeah, but what do the blood elves actually ever? The blood elves beef should be against the humans of Lordaeron. Yeah, Stormwind is nowhere near them. Stormwind had nothing to do with any of it. Sure, but I mean, I guess I guess I can kind of understand the transference there because it's the strongest human, you know anything now and i'm not saying it's right i'm not saying it's right i I agree with you but it's like i can see where like they would go well our beef was with lordaeron but everybody from lordaeron fled to stormwind now and stormwind's the new bastion of humanity so you know let's just hate them instead did did the undead and and lordaeron leave too or are they still there being the humans from lordaeron that you had problems well you know the forsaken i mean that's a whole other other thing Lorthamar's got his own issues with the Forsaken, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't trust them either. Um, There's like a lot of weirdness, and I don't, I don't know how we, we we're closing in on the end of the show, right? Yeah, we are, but it's okay because uh, we can wrap this up. This is a good uh, conversation. 
<laughs> all, all I'm saying is there's the, the, the way things are set up right now, the orcs don't really have a presence. They have Sorfang, but just a couple expansions ago, the, the, the orcs were completely driving the plot. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. the orcs are used as fodder, but they're not driving the plot. Which is a shame too, at least to me a little bit, because like it, I part love Sarfang. Part of the reason why I enjoyed that Horde side cinematic, the one after you defeat Antorus, um, part of the reason I enjoyed that cinematic so much was because it went out of its way to highlight all of these individual leaders, like Bane giving giving. Uh, Gallowick's the side eye <laughs> like what are you up to <laughs> and then you had that exchange between him and sour fat all of a sudden all of a sudden it seemed like everybody at that table had a role you yeah know what I mean? no i agree yeah that was that was actually really cool that was also yeah. um those two cinematics i want to talk about that very briefly i know we're nearing the end of time here i don't know if you guys need to run off or not but um those two cinematics were apparently the first ones that christy golden worked on pretty extensively from I mean, I it gather. shows. Yeah, it does show because what it's I very saw, characterful. W- what I saw in those two cinematics was something that I haven't seen in a long time. Warcraft cinematics in general. Don't get me wrong; I love them all. I do love them all. I've loved them since the Wrathgate. Um, when we got that big Wrathgate thing, and it was just blew my mind, and they've continued to blow my mind like every expansion. But this one in particular, it seemed like. We dialed back the heroic language a little bit and threw in a little bit of humanity instead. Does that make sense? Not humanity yeah. as in, oh, the humans are doing things. Character. I'm talking about like personality, like like that human element that lets you relate to people. And it was on both the Alliance one and the Horde one. Like you saw it on both of them. They were having casual conversations that, yes, they had weight. They had importance to them, but their character was still shining through. And when you go back to like earlier ones and yeah, I'll go back and I'll talk about the Wrathgate one because let's, let's talk about the first one. Wrathgate. You have Wrathgate show up and there's a little bit of an exchange between uh, Saurfang the Younger and Bolvar where they kind of have a bantering bit of back and forth that's kind of cute but the rest of it is very it's heroic language i I don't know how else to describe it it's like heroic language it's like that that formal speak that you use when you're saying something really epic and you want it to carry a lot of weight we we actually had to talk about this right before the show because i stopped at my local shop my gaming shop on the way in and and ran into one of my friends we had a very lengthy conversation about these two types of things in tabletop role-playing games because you have you have sort of these moments where, like, you have your grandiose, epic combats in which, you know, you're saying these very cinematic things and you're saying these things the that DM are like... DM is setting the stage, yeah, as it exactly. were. Exactly. Like, these very, very grand gestures. And then you have these scenes where the players or the, the, the characters are interacting with each other around a campfire there's no impending doom there's no there's no big bad looming over them there's no combat happening around them and so they get to be themselves in a way that they don't necessarily get to in the middle of combat it's like a those, it, it's like a difference between yes formal speak and casual speak i guess but, conversational eh. but the, the difference to me and this is the way that i described it is the heroic ones they're absolutely amazing but they showcase the classes. They showcase the war. The smaller conversations showcase the character. And that's what I think this cinematic does in particular. And that's why I love it so much is because you see 
the character. You see who these individuals are in the sly little looks, how they're sitting at the table when there's like these sort of uh, pregnant silences where like you're just expecting something to happen. And then when something does happen, how everybody reacts to it, it felt very organic and it it removed from sort of that stuff. It felt good. Have either of you unlocked the light forge yet? Yeah. No. Okay. Have you unlocked the void elves? You yes. both unlocked the I've unlocked. I know all the four. scenarios though. I've, I've unlocked done the, all four. I've, I've seen the scenarios. Okay, what, well, I'm not talking about the scenarios. When you go in to turn in the quest, uh, Anduin is talking, and he's very. This is a moment for the alliance. It's, it's very. I'm wearing my dad's pants. It's it's formal talk. Yeah, it's that but formal hoity-toity talk. When you actually do the quest, the actual like the high the Lightforge quest with Tapartos. Mm-hmm. Um, Tapardos is a little goofy. Oh, I love Tapardos, but, though. But Captain, but Captain Ferreira says something. There's, she just doesn't put up with it. In a really, in a very. <laughs> I love the way she talks. She has this really dry delivery that works. Very for exas- me. <laughs> she, She's exasperated. She's, but that's you're talking about when you're talking about scale. What you're really talking about is the difference between a speech and a talk. The funny like, part Perea is... is talking to him. In a, there's a, the part that I really want to get to is you get through the whole thing, you do the whole scenario, you bring Tapardos out. Tapardos even admits that he didn't just pick you because you're puny, but that he's in, he admires your bravery. There's a bunch going on. She's like, he starts to say something. She's like, Tapardos, this is a formal ceremony. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just this perfect little moment of her characterization. It's very hard to get that across in a video game. Oh yeah, and Anduin I think, has yeah. these moments because I know you mentioned that like when you first talk to him and he gives that little speech thing. It's like I'm wearing the dad pants, right? Um, and then if you talk to him, like if you just talk to him, open up the the conversation, but all of a sudden he sounds a little bit more informal, like he's he's actually having a conversation yeah. with you. So there's like this this bouncing back and forth. What I find interesting that how did you like those cinematics, Rossi? Uh, I thought that the the horde one is good. I'm I'm straight up, I felt kind of, there's a part on the internet, someone was doing it, and I saw it a couple places, and I think it actually kind of works. Nathanos totally seems like the guy who's like, I don't know anybody at this party. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, just, he does. Just straight up. Well, why, I'm only here because I know one he's person. Just like, no, she's no my, longer at the table anymore. My, my girlfriend took me to this party with all her work friends, and then she left to go talk to them. And now I'm work. just sitting here kind of awkwardly picking yeah. up food. I can't even eat because I'm dead. Yeah, yeah like, no. The, and these guys that that I liked I liked the feeling of you know Sylvanas's I've said it before in places I like the fact that Sylvanas feels like she's tactically brilliant yeah she's strategically a genius she is a crap politician oh yeah absolutely she does not know how to run an organization when she, when it's not just I tell you what to do and you do it yeah and I don't think that and, she was brought in for politics she was brought in for vengeance but now that she's at a place where she has to try and be political, and that's one of the reasons why it's great, see, isn't it? <laughs> I see the war going forward is it's busying busying unquiet minds with foreign quarrels. Yeah. She knows how to run a war. She doesn't know anything about running a peace. Like how do I? I don't. I have to go to these things and hang out and talk, and they have to see me. Why do they need to see me for? In like, a way, this, this... she's like she's a creature of war. She always has been there. <sighs> 
The thing that I enjoyed about these cinematics, though, is that even Andwin, when Andwin, Andwin was giving the big formal speech, right? He was doing the formal talk. He was trying to do the formal talk, wear the dad pants, give the speech to everybody that was gathered there, talk about everything that they'd lost. But even in that speech, there was this spark of humanity about him that kind of resonated through it. And that carried on into the little aside there. And I loved the fact that we had a shot of Greymane not saying anything, just watching. And we got to see the expression on Greymane's face. Like, he didn't have to say anything to deliver that across. The cinematics team did a good job of just, like, letting him say it with his expression. Well, and- that's like, if you're going to talk about that cinematic, the, the bit where Shaw comes up. Shaw, that, that Someone- part I loved. Someone pointed out to me that, that there's a very interesting dynamic where we have a father who lost his son uh-huh. and son who lost his father. And there's a very weird dynamic between the two of them. And Shaw comes in and he's like, he knows instantly, I need to get to Anduin, which means I have to deal with Greymane. So I better go I, do that. I, he, doesn't, he doesn't complain about it. He, he, doesn't, he just holds his nose and does it. There's that, that, the best part is that little quiet, I need to speak with him yeah it was just like that little exchange and and the eye the eyes between the two of them like really um it knocked it out of the park and if this is the level of cinematics that we're going to see in the future if this is what bringing christy golden in does to cinematics dude sign me up i'm i'm on board i want to see more of this because it's like the novels have suddenly come to life in the game it's weird i love it i definitely think that they need to do more with um, the uh, like the Horde cinematic did a little bit of a better job of working in the other faction leaders. Mm-hmm. If, if you walk around the embassy, the, the Stormwind embassy, and you talk to all the people there, um, Asa has an interesting bit of dialogue. Yes, she does. Where she, she, she's like, the young king, I have great respect for him, but I have to admit his father was a better sparring partner. Please don't tell him I said so. Yeah. And the Moira is like, you know, this all this makes me think of my own people. Uh, Taronda doesn't talk to you. Taronda is lost in thought, and I find that very interesting because the last time we experienced a character that was lost in thought and didn't want to really talk to you at that point in time was Thrall immediately after he killed Garrosh. And it was Thrall coming to terms with, uh-oh, I think I did a bad. And that was later confirmed in Legion when the Doomhammer was like, sup, nope, bye. <laughs> You're not the dude of destiny. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, so... There's... That's the impression that I got from Taronda was was maybe Taronda was thinking, uh oh, I just did a bad. Well, and I don't know. know. For all we know, that's there for what we know is coming. Yeah, because the embassy is going to be there throughout the next throughout expansion. Battle for Azeroth, yes. So it's possible that the reason she's not saying anything. But I was interested in the fact that it's just her. There's no Malfurion. Nope, he's not there. Velen is there too, but Velen's kind of thinking about his own things. And you well, you talk to him, and I think he gives you something inspirational. I don't remember. But I mean, even at the end of like when you're turning in the stuff for like uh, the Illidan crystal, like they're not together. She's she's got her own things to worry about, and he's over and and doing his own thing too. While they're like relatively close in the same zone, they're both in Valtra, but but it's like I, I think that I mean I don't want to say for lack of a better thing he has more to do because I don't think that's true. But I think he's more. Malfurion strikes me as more concerned with repairing the aftermath of the dream being released from the nightmare than he is literally anything else. And that's why, just why he's simply not there. Um, on top of the fact that I think Tron really has become the de facto leader. Like like you said, she's been holding Night Elf Society together for that many yeah, years. They did she's going to be the one thing. that goes to those. 
I, I agree with you that she should always have been so. They did that weird thing after Stormrage where they were co-leading. No, they're and, co-leaders because, you know, they lead together. And I'm like, since when? Since when? <laughs> the reason that that was a bad idea was threefold. First off, it's it's bad because if he's the co-leader of Night Elf Society, he can't simultaneously be the leader of a neutral druidic organization. He's doing right. a pretty Something's terrible job. If that's I mean... It. Let's straight up say this. I'll, I'll be the one to come up and say it. Horde, horde groups have attacked his people. And he didn't even go to Hamul and say, Hey, Hamul, can you talk to them and tell them to stop firebombing my town? Because it's like in, you know, I, that's kind of who we like, no, man, I'm sorry. I totally can't. Just the way it is. Can I get firebombed? Let's go back to being neutral. Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. You can't have a guy be in charge of one society while he's simultaneously palavering with the others. It doesn't work. It's always been weird. Just make him a neutral druid and have it be done. Oh, it's always bothered me. It's just, it's I, You know what? I, I, can't, I can't disagree with you. It I, should be I, kind of same, a bone of contention boat. between him and Tyrande, and it's not. I mean, that should be something that she'd be... in. Okay, Warcraft 3 Tyrande would be calling him to the carpet for that and going, why are you talking to these orcs? Why are you talking to the Horde? Why are you allowing them to help you with all of this stuff in Hyjal? Like, why are you even giving them the time of day? You do realize what they've done. You realize the reason that Hyjal is like, like you think that she would have like had something to say about that, and she did not. And again... When we, I know that we had a very long discussion slash argument. I'm sure people will find it very entertaining that we did. <laughs> but I, I know when we were talking about Taronda's character development and everything, that's another one of those things where I'm like, what is Taronda really? Like, what is how she do what? Like, <laughs> See, that was not that is on Taronda, in my opinion. That's straight up on Malfurion. It's on Malfurion, it's, but the thing is, is like, okay, Malfurion is doing these things, and it's weird that he's doing these things. It's even weirder that Taronda is not questioning him on it. Like, she's not, she doesn't have anything to say about this. You'd think that she would, you know? That's part of the problem is that they, we don't get to see these characters no. doing anything very often. Like, think about how much time you actually see um Anduin doing anything. We only got to see Anduin doing as much as we did because he gets quests where he goes places. Um they oh, haven't yeah. given Toronto that in a long time and that's another problem. Quite frankly, I would love an expansion that focused on other characters and got away one of the things that I'm bugged by the uh I, you you've you, we've done the alpha. We're not going to talk about the story of the alpha. But one of the things I loved was seeing Rokan. Rokan's doing stuff again. Yeah. I I haven't mm -hmm. seen Rokan since Wrath. Yeah. And before that, you didn't see Rokan since, you know, Warcraft 3, uh, the, the the cap end with the... With Rexar. Yeah. That's the last time you got to see that guy. A lot's happened, and he really should have been involved in it. And he hasn't been. You haven't seen him or heard from him. So at least he's back, and you get to see him. That's good. There's a lot of characters who need some some time. It isn't just the big ones that we all know of. There's a ton of characters who really don't get any development. Well, we went completely off the rails and off topic. And we are also <laughs> over time by a substantial amount. So I'm going to call it there, even though we could probably talk about this for another six hours or so. Uh, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. And your continued support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on a podcast or the queue, 
and an ads-free site experience. Um, on top of all of that, we actually just celebrated our third anniversary over here at Blizzard Watch, and we also released a new anniversary Phoenix t-shirt. You can actually get a hold of that if you are interested in picking one of those up by going to teespring.com slash bw-year-3. That's the number three. Um, those are available for a limited time. If you're listening to this on Patreon, you got a couple weeks. If you're listening to this on the RSS feed on the main release next week, uh, you got like maybe five or six days left, so you should hop on that if you want one of those. Thanks, you guys, for your continued support, and thank you guys for listening to the show. Again, if you've got an email for the show, send that to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Put Lorewatch in the subject line so that we know that it's intended for the show. Thanks again for listening, guys, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.